Welcome to episode one of the Rising Edge DNO podcast. I am your co-host, Richard Kutcher, and alongside me and leading the way in our expert guest interviews is Owen Dacey, head of claims at Rising Edge, the boutique client-focused underwriting agency expert on directors and offices, liability insurance, and risk management. Owen, welcome. How's it going? Are you ready for our, are you ready for our first pod? Great, thank you. Yeah, as a DNO nerd, I am a little bit excited. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, talking about DNO nerds, uh, your day job is obviously all about DNO and getting a close view when things do go wrong or an event happens on the insured's side. So I guess it's with that in mind that this Rising Edge. DNO podcast series is really focused all around mitigation, isn't it? Yeah, the first series is. So as I've said previously, those working on the claim side, I think we've got a lot of knowledge and expertise that is valuable when it comes to helping our clients and partners think about risk mitigation. So with that in mind, that's that's what the first batch is all about. Uh, we're talking to experts, listening to what they have to say. People are way more intelligent than me. The aim being that our listeners go away with increased knowledge on important areas of exposure for directors and officers or tips and things they can go away and implement. Absolutely. So let's talk about uh, this first episode then where we hopefully will give uh, our listeners some uh, some tips and knowledge. It's all about US securities litigation risk for these and those. And we've got a couple of brilliant experts ready to talk us through this topic. So Owen, who are they and, and why are they best placed to address this one for us? Yep. So our guests really are top of the game when it comes to this topic. We've got Audra Soloway and Daniel Sinreich from the law firm Paul Weiss. Audra is co-chair of the Securities Litigation and Enforcement Group within Paul Weiss. Dan is an associate from Paul Weiss and specialises in securities litigation as well. They've got extensive experience representing companies and directors and officers in shareholder class actions, derivative litigations. They also represent clients in investigations and enforcement proceedings. So they also write and speak extensively on securities laws and on key issues impacting publicly listed companies. So they really are perfectly place to talk about risk mitigation in this space with us. And finally, it's absolutely fantastic also to have with us Joel Brightman, who is the Managing Director of Rising Edge. So let's get into the episode then. And Audra starts by explaining the type of US securities litigation risk that these and those are exposed to today. So look, I think in the context of the U.S. landscape, really we're thinking about a few different kinds of cases, most specifically civil class action litigation, which is sort of a common occurrence, unfortunately, for public companies that are traded in the U.S., and derivative litigation, which is where shareholders seek to stand in the shoes of the company and assert claims against either the the company's management team or the board of directors on behalf of the company. Of course, we also have you know regulatory risk, whether that's the SEC or some other government entity. But I think for directors, that's probably a less significant risk for them. What does risk mitigation mean to you within the context of exposures that directors and officers of public companies face? And when I'm talking about exposures, we're thinking about any type of securities litigation. The, the way I think about this is that anytime a company has an announcement that causes a stock price decline, there is a risk of class action litigation in the U.S. There just is. That's just the reality. And if I were, you know, if I were sitting on a board of directors of a company that was about to make an announcement 
you know, an announcement really of any kind that may have a, a negative market reaction, I would be thinking proactively about how to manage not just the things that directors are always thinking about, which is running the company for the, you know, for the best interest of the business and thinking about good and solid corporate governance. Um, and of course, thinking about compliance with all different kinds of government regulations and disclosure requirements. But I would be thinking about that risk of civil litigation and trying to sort of set the company up as best as possible. You know, negative developments happen and sometimes they're unavoidable. But sometimes I think if you act proactively, you can try to mitigate the risk of civil uh, class action exposure by, you know, sort of thinking through these issues ahead of time and consulting with a litigator. And commonly, I think companies, you know, they've got internal constituencies that are involved in disclosures. They have their auditors, they have their internal disclosure counsel, and they have their in-house counsel. And all of those constituencies are incredibly important and are going to provide critical advice to the company in how to make disclosures and how to talk to their shareholders. But they may not have the perspective of a litigator to sort of help avoid some of the pitfalls, I think, of, of sort of stepping into future litigation. And those types of things include, you know, really examining risk disclosures over time and thinking about whether the risk disclosures are still accurately capturing the risks and having a litigator think about that from like a litigation perspective. Other things that companies can do, you know, if you know you're about to make an announcement that may have a negative stock price drop, I think often companies provide sort of the minimum of what they're required to say, but they don't necessarily think about the fact that these documents that they're issuing are creating a record that could be used in a motion to dismiss going forward. And sometimes, you know, saying more than what's absolutely required can be helpful because if you provide your shareholders with an explanation of what's really led to this moment in time, those disclosures can then be used to explain to a court later why there's no actionable misstatement. And just to give you an example, Owen, recently in the United States, we've seen a real increase in the number of uh, 33 Act cases that are filed following IPOs. So this is a non-Center-based claim, right, that's filed very often in the wake of a public offering. And the plaintiffs don't have to plead that anyone intended to engage in fraud. They just have to identify generally a false and materially misleading statement. And so the plaintiffs, I think, like these cases because they perceive that there is a lower pleading burden for them and because they can be filed in state court where plaintiffs believe the pleading standards are lower and in some cases they are. And if you can work with a public disclosure to be able to say to the judge, judge, the plaintiffs are claiming that the stock price declined after the offering, but it's because of something that happened after the offering. You can demonstrate that there couldn't possibly have been a false statement at the time of the offering because the facts that the plaintiffs are now pointing to hadn't even happened as of that time. And you can create that record by making a clear disclosure that explains to your investors in what order the various events transpired and why it is you're disclosing this information now. But if you don't think through that ahead of time and you just, you know, issue a, a negative announcement that doesn't really set the scene and provide that context, you may not have the real sort of meat and potatoes that you can use to defend that claim later. And that's just one example. On, on those points, um, I mean, you've talked a bit about the 33 Act. What about, you know, with respect to the Securities Act 34, 
There's been an increase in the last few years in what people are referring to as event-driven litigation. So is there a way that companies can mitigate the risk that arises um, specifically from an event that may or may not have also been uh, disclosed in filings? You know, I think there is, Yoel. So one of the trends that I've noticed in the 34 Act context is, and I'm sure you have as well, very often those types of negative announcements are driven by either, for example, a whistleblower complaint or some discovery at the company of some adverse event, or in some cases, uh, you know, some kind of a, either a restatement or a reconsideration of some prior accounting issue. And what what tends to happen when those issues percolate up to the board, and frankly, in particular, we're talking about whistleblower type issues that percolate up to the board and then get investigated at the board level, is that, you know, there is appropriately a lot of concern about the kind of scrutiny that the company may receive in the aftermath, you know, either from regulators or potentially even from, you know, the DOJ in the United States. And so I think there's this tendency to think about that first and think about the civil litigation later. And one of the things that we've noticed is that in the company's haste to try to deal with the immediate regulatory consequences, whether that's an SEC investigation or something akin to that, you know, an audit committee investigation, SEC investigation, a whole bunch of documents are getting created without a lot of thought to what the subsequent consequences of those are going to be, and, and in particular, public filings. And so companies will you know, conduct investigations and they'll address the investigation in the context of those. And very often they say things that either don't need to be said or that ultimately aren't going to be backed up by the evidence, but that reflect sort of a preliminary conclusion. And I would really strongly encourage companies to think through the consequences sort of on a holistic level when they're in that situation. I mean, the civil litigation can very often be the biggest ticket item that the company is going to face. And you know, even though it tends to be the last thing that the company is going to face. And so there's this tendency to focus on the SEC or an audit committee investigation at the outset without thinking about the civil litigation. And by then, you know, it, it, it can be too late. Um, I'll give you an example of this. You know, a couple years ago, a company that was about to announce the outcome of an of, a, of an investigation came to us with a disclosure that was drafted and ready to go and was about to be issued. And they were just starting to think about civil litigation. So they showed it to us. We were going to be helping them with civil litigation. And there was this sentence, this single sentence in this, you know, in this press release that really criticized the prior management team for an issue that had come up. And it was really gratuitous and unnecessary and didn't need to be there and, and frankly reflected facts that were contested. And we said, you know, why is this there? And the company said, well, the, you know, the auditors suggested it and we didn't want to push back. And we said, well, let's talk to them about it. Let's have a dialogue about it. And we did. And ultimately, the sentence was revised to reflect what we thought was a, a more accurate statement of the record. Had that gone out, you know, that alone could have been enough for the plaintiffs to defeat summary judgment in the case. Just the issue of fact created by that sentence. So we, we understand that boards in those situations are under a lot of pressure. They're under time pressure. They're under pressure to get it right. They're thinking about good corporate governance and they should be. But you also have to think at the end of the day, good corporate governance includes not exposing the company to significant class action securities litigation that, that could follow. And we have to bear that in mind when we think about the earlier course of conduct. I often think that the people that are dealing with the claims or, or dealing with the defense of claims just have a completely different perspective on things that are going on right so we we see it after the event and so actually introducing those people at an earlier stage 
I think can be a, a powerful risk mitigation tool because it basically introduces kind of a diversity of, of thinking. I would agree with that. I mean, you know, in in our matters, we can we you know we work in partnership with the insurance carriers who have a lot of experience um, with these cases and can provide a lot of insight. I mean, everything from sort of insight on the mediators and the, the mediation strategy to they may know about cases handled by the plaintiffs counsel that we didn't handle, and they may have insights based on those other experiences. So I would say, as as a general matter. You know, our practice in these cases is to have sort of routine consultations with the carriers um, and get the benefit of their thinking on on very strategic decisions. We've spoken a lot about the the involvement of securities litigators at an earlier stage, maybe in drafting or reviewing public disclosures, public statements. Obviously, as part of, like you said, the wider group of people that will be responsible within a company for those things. Can you tell us about some more cases? Have you got involved at that earlier stage where, you know, before there's even an event as such that might lead to a, a negative stock price reaction? We have. I mean, you know, I would say most commonly we get involved when something, you know, is about to be announced. And I think, as I said, getting the litigator's perspective is critical there. But the other thing that our clients sometimes have us do is even when there's nothing going on, you know, they want a litigator's perspective on, you know, how they're set up in the event of a future lawsuit. And what we'll do in that situation is we'll try to identify working with the client, what are the three, four, five high risk areas and interview key people at the client. And the question that I'll ask them is, what is it that keeps you up at night? What are the things that, you know, that you think six months out, a year out from now are the things that could potentially go wrong, whether that's at the company or there are things outside the company that are going to impact the company, you know, external factors that worry you or that give you concern. And sometimes just by having those conversations and comparing what people tell us with the company's risk disclosures, you know, the, the disclosures that companies make every year, we can offer suggestions for how to augment those to make them, you know, even more substantive, even more honed in on the things that may ultimately happen in the future. Yeah. And often I think in my experiences, in a lot of these cases, and almost all of them, what you're looking at when you have a claim is I've never really looked at it and thought that's, that's definitely fraud or that was definitely trying to deliberately trying to mislead the market. What you see is maybe kind of chinks in the history of um, communications that has been put out. Very often, the plaintiffs will pursue a theory that's based on this concept that if you've chosen to speak, you can't speak in half-truths, right? And sometimes what they do is they'll seize on a risk disclosure and they'll say, well, you warned us about this, yes, but you didn't really tell us how bad it had gotten. And you know, there are cases that say that that theory isn't viable. There are cases that say that just because a risk has become more likely doesn't mean your risk disclosure has become misleading. But I also think that companies are are really benefited from reevaluating their risk disclosures and showing the judges, yes, in 2018, I warned about this, but then in 2019, I augmented that risk disclosure because, you know, this particular thing was even more worrying. And just showing judges that you don't issue the same disclosure, you know, year after year when it's appropriate to make changes mm-hmm. to them, I think can also go a long way. So that comes down to document retention, continually monitoring and updating as you learn more about whatever the risk might be. Our clients, I think, make it make it a practice every year to think through these issues. You know, companies take these controls very seriously. They, they look every year at their K and think about what may or may not need to be modified. But again, I think sometimes getting a litigator in to do the sort of the litigation perspective can be useful. I, I also think just to go back to a topic we were talking about earlier, and I would bump this one to Dan, 
boards of directors, I think, are also, you know, thinking regularly about governance issues and, you know, what kinds of liability potentially they can face in the derivative context for you know, alleged breaches of fiduciary duty or corporate waste type theories. And I think there's been some, you know, movement in this area that I think is worth talking about. There's been, I guess, I hesitate to call it a trend, but there have been, uh, there's been some movement in how the Delaware courts at least have uh, been adjudicating oversight claims against uh, boards of directors. These are, these are claims that the directors of a company uh, incorporated in Delaware have failed in their duty to oversee in good faith a system of management information reporting or internal controls that are supposed to flag operational problems for the board. Uh, we, we call them Caremark claims because they're named after a Delaware Chancery decision from 1996, I believe, which is where the, uh, the standard comes from. So historically, Caremark claims, these sort of oversight claims, every single decision on them always starts the same way. It says, this is the hardest claim or among the hardest claims to plead and prove in corporate governance in in Delaware courts. In the first, I think, 22 years after the pleading standard was announced, there were only seven claims that even survived a threshold motion. In other words, there there were only seven claims that even survived the motion to dismiss. That's how difficult they were. And so plaintiff's firms were discouraged from pursuing them. In the last two years, there have been another seven cases that have survived a motion to dismiss. So there, there does seem to be an increased appetite among Delaware courts. I mean, most of the cases that have moved forward are, are, are based on relatively extreme facts. You know, uh, an ice cream company that has a listeria outbreak that forces it to shutter, you know, a bunch of its a bunch of its ice cream factories and lay off a bunch of its workers, and then it's it's learned that there was literally no board level discussion whatsoever uh, of the outbreak. So, so the, the the facts tend to be extreme, but what what the Delaware courts are saying is, look, there needs to be some evidence of uh, a board level monitoring and oversight here, and a, a board that is aware of, of you know, a major issue, especially in a heavily regulated area, can't ignore multiple red flags that, uh, that, that something needs to be monitored uh, or addressed at the board level. And the evidence that a lot of these cases have been turning on really comes down to meeting minutes. The vast majority of these cases begin with a books and records demand where a plaintiff shareholder will ask to review uh, meeting minutes and uh, you know other, other board meeting materials to determine whether they want or have enough evidence to pursue a derivative claim. Audra probably has more experience than me here, but I think that there is this sort of reflexive feeling in a lot of companies that the meeting minutes should be very bare bones. That meeting minutes, you know, you see, you see in meeting minutes these sort of very vague, not always, but, but quite often these very vague descriptions, you know, company then discussed employment issues, discussion ensued. It's kind of open to interpretation at a later date, which is another risk in itself, right? If it's if it's vague like that. that. That's exactly right. And then the risk gets amplified because you turn these documents over to plaintiffs in a book and records demand. And I should add, by the way, that in December of 2020, the Delaware Supreme Court had a, a pretty important decision that made the standard for getting books and records in these books and records demands even lower than it already had been. So it's it's not a high bar for plaintiffs to get these documents in the first place. So if you're on a board, you should expect, I think it's fair to say that uh, if a bad, you know, that you're going to have to turn these over from time to time. If, if there's a negative announcement that prompts interest in the shareholder derivatives, then you turn over these minutes over. If there's no indication in the meeting minutes that a company, that the board of directors was actively engaged in and discussing some sort of mission critical issue or some sort of major issue for the company, the plaintiffs are going to show that to 
the uh, judge in one of these cases, and the judge is going to say, sometimes, increasingly, I, I see no evidence of board level oversight. Uh, I'm going to allow these claims to you know proceed into discovery, and that, as Audrey mentioned earlier, is where the where the exposure really grows, both monetarily and reputationally. I think the lesson that I would take away from this, if I were you know, either an in-house counsel or a director, is that there really shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all approach to how you document corporate decision-making. While the, you know, the normal meeting minute approach may work in a lot of cases, it's not going to work in every case. And sometimes you're going to have really good reason to want to document the factors that the board considered, what information was supplied to them, what they relied on. And sometimes it's going to be appropriate to write a resolution that memorializes is in a non-privileged way the direction that the board of directors gave management for how to deal with that issue. Because if you don't have a record of that, the plaintiffs will point to the, just the lack of the record as a failure of oversight. And so I guess what I would say is, you know, there again, no one size fits all approach. Each of these situations needs to be assessed on its own merit. But I would bear that in mind, right, when I'm dealing with various different types of reporting issues that are percolating up to the board of directors, because these oversight claims, you know, it does feel like they're coming more fast and furious than they than they used to be. And uh, just to build on what Audra said earlier, it, it's not the worst idea to have a litigator in the room from time to time, either in the board meeting, if you know it's about an important issue, or uh, to review the draft minutes. Um, this is a role that I know I've played. I suspect that Audra has played for some of our clients. And having someone who regularly defends these sorts of both books and records demands and also shareholder derivative lawsuits, having their perspective in the room, so to speak, is, is uh, can, can be quite helpful because we can help flag uh, issues or anticipate issues that, that could down, come down the pike. I think with risk mitigation, it's important to look back and, and look at what's happened in the past, but also you've got to be looking into the future right, and what the future trends might be. What What's on the horizon and what do you think the drivers will be for future litigation? Is it more event stuff or, or will it be other things, do you think? You know, I always say that, that securities litigation really follows life. And in my career as a lawyer, that's certainly been true, right? The, the major drivers of securities litigation when I became a, a lawyer 20 years ago were the dot-com and telecom bubbles bursting contemporaneous with the WorldCom and the Enron frauds, followed by the subprime crisis, followed by, you know, a, a whole sort, sort of series of changes in the world, including the Me Too movement, which has prompted a significant number of securities litigations as well. So I guess what I would say is we can, we can be sure that whatever is sort of the focus of the newspapers is going to appear in our cases. That we know. I think we also have a sense that civil litigation follows regulatory developments. And under the Trump administration, I think there was some slowing of sort of big ticket regulatory cases that would sort of drive corresponding civil litigation. But I think we're going to see an uptick in that under the Biden administration. And I I think we're going to see that in a couple of areas. Okay, so moving on to we'll move on to the Biden administration, and, and we've got Gary Gensler. We've got another a new chairman of the SEC, a pro whistleblower administration. Dan, how do you see this impacting that regulatory environment for public companies? Well, I, I think I think there are a couple places where the Biden administration and uh, Chairman Gensler have already sort of tipped their hand. I don't think anyone's particularly surprised by this. Uh, But they seem to be focused, among other things, on the need possibly for ESG disclosures. So the SEC has already called for comments from the public on whether it should engage in some new rulemaking that would require some level of ESG disclosures. 
I think reading the tea leaves, uh, most people who are watching this expect that the SEC will engage in rulemaking and require some level of ESG disclosure. It's it's a pretty open question of what that's going to entail, though. I mean, first of all, the, the SEC does not have infinite rulemaking power. Um, they are constrained in some ways. And there's a question, I think, of whether if they require ESG disclosures, whether it will be limited to um, environmental, social, and governance issues that are known uh, or likely to have a material financial impact on the company, or whether uh, the disclosures they require will, will actually be broader than that. That really bothers me, actually. I, I really worry about, about directors overstating credentials in an attempt to try to satisfy regulatory demands, or at least the zeitgeist and the concern in the public domain around ESG credentials. I can just see directors potentially overstating those, and that can lead, obviously, to litigation. So I'm particularly concerned about that. Yeah, I think that concern is justified. I mean, I think, I think unfortunately, there is a sense, and, it, and it's an incorrect one, that you know, if you're not speaking in an SEC filing, or if you're, you know, if you're putting something on the website that the company views more as sort of promotional materials rather than investor materials, that that's not covered, and that's just wrong, right? I mean, plaintiffs can bring in a claim based on anything that the company says that gets to its shareholders, whether they intend for the shareholders to rely on it or not. And so, to that point, Yoel. If companies put out, you know, a pamphlet each year that says this is what we're doing as a company to, you know, protect our our world, and they say things in there about how they're measuring themselves that turn out later to be untrue, that could be the basis for a claim. Yeah, absolutely. And if they don't have the framework in place, you could end up with derivative suits. So it's yeah, that really worries me. That greenwashing, as it's sometimes referred to. Well, thank you to Audra and Daniel for a very informative and enlightening first episode. One of my key takeaways from that, Owen, is is really make sure you know what you're disclosing and why you're disclosing it. Yeah. So firstly, big takeaway for me is re- reality is bad things happen. Sock drops happen. That puts you at risk of litigation. So that's just the reality. But there are ways... I say to, to mitigate this risk. And the lesson I learned, I think, is being proactive in your approach, you know, thinking, looking into the future and perhaps even consulting litigators and bringing them into the equation at an earlier stage, you know, even if there's nothing going on uh, and thinking, how is a court going to look at this? Second second point for me was just general company communication. So just because something is kind of promotional in nature or because it's not in an SEC filing, it doesn't mean that, that it won't be used against you as a basis on which to allege securities fraud. Thirdly, just something that comes up over over and over again. And I actually, I've seen cases involving, you know, huge multinational companies as well on this. And that people have described it as trite, but creating a record and documentation to kind of why you did something, how you did it. And we heard about this from Order and Dan within the context of oversight claims, you know, the documentation of board level decision making and not just documenting the decisions, but documenting the why as well. And finally, then just on trends, it kind of landed on me like this essential truth, if that's the right way to describe it, but that is security litigation trends follow life. So whatever is the focus of the news is going to appear in the cases we see. So right now, you know, supply chain, ESG, SPACs, COVID, trade wars, cybersecurity and uh, social inflation, all that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a very uh, articulate point well made by Audra about the security litigation following life. And, and one of those you just mentioned there, ESG, was mentioned briefly by Daniel in that interview. And, and luckily, we are going to be expanding upon that very topic in much greater detail in episode two when we explore DNO risks and how to mitigate them in relation to the growing importance of environmental, societal and governance issues for corporates. 
Yeah, another hot topic, and I'm looking forward to getting stuck into that one too in greater detail. So a quick reminder that you can listen to the Rising Edge DNO podcast on any podcast app. We're on all the big ones, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, Amazon Music, and the smaller ones as well. Just search for us. And the easiest way to get every new episode downloaded straight to your device is to make sure you have hit that subscribe or follow button. But Owen, we've done the first one. In the meantime, stay well and see you soon. Same to you, Richard. Thank you.